Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Andrew Seskine, and he is going to talk about his book, It's Not About the Sex, Moving from Isolation to Intimacy After Sexual Addiction. I really enjoyed interviewing Andrew. We go into depth about attachment, emotional regulation, the need for reliable people to be able to heal your traumatic wounds and how how we can do that when we're in recovery and maybe we're still struggling with the internal chaos. We have to work and deal with our internal and sometimes early trauma that uh, Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to see and a little bit more difficult to process through without a reliable, trustworthy other in our lives. So I hope that you get a lot out of this episode and I hope you enjoy it. Let's go ahead and start it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Andrew, it's great to have you come on the show and talk about your book. It's not about the sex and about sexual compulsivity, sexual addiction, out of control, sexual behavior, all the different terms that people refer to it. So let's jump in. Tell me a little bit about you. Great. Thank you for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're welcome. And I'm always happy to talk about the book because this is really a passion project for me. You know, I always say that it could have been an autobiography, but I'm not quite that narcissistic. (laughs) So I, I chose to write about themes that really have been on my mind for three decades now. And what I mean by that is I finished grad school in 1991, so in June of this year, it would have been 30 years since I finished grad school, which is crazy, of course. But wow. Yeah. And I've been kind of sentimental about it. I, I got to say that 
so much has changed in, in our field, both in the mental health field and in the addiction and trauma world since that time. And I'm actually really hopeful and excited about all the changes. And I feel that my book actually reflects many of those changes. So what I would like to share, Duane, is, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm also a somatic experiencing practitioner as well as a brain spotting practitioner. And I'm a certified group psychotherapist. And so I have a lot of letters behind my name, but basically I'm addicted to training myself because I'm always wanting to learn and grow and see how I can help my clients as best I can. I am based in Los Angeles. I'm actually going to be opening a new office in Santa Monica this fall, which I'm excited about because I've been working from home for almost a year, right? as many of us have. And what many people don't know is that in 1994, I went to my first SCA meeting, Sexual Compulsives Anonymous. And I've been part of SCA and SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, since 1994. And so in the therapy room and in the 12-step rooms, as you know, there's still a tremendous amount of suffering. You know, Absolutely, people are yeah. yeah, people are, are are learning how to stop the behaviors, but that's really the starting gate. And so what I wanted to write about was what are the the themes and different areas of healing that can happen beyond just stopping the destructive or, or problematic right. behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So that it can be a, a bigger picture. It's not just stopping, it's living a good life. As you were introducing yourself, you were talking about all these letters after your name. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those letters are, are really important because mm-hmm. I think it kind of sets the stage of your work when you talk about somatic experiencing and brain spotting and doing that work in healing the deeper parts of this trauma. So can you talk a little bit about those and then we'll go back and talk a little bit about compulsive sexual behavior or out of control sexual behavior. But I think it's important to kind of set the stage with that. Absolutely. So when I was in grad school, I don't actually remember hearing anybody talk about the nervous system. And when I think back on that, it's kind of prehistoric because really the nervous system is really the territory as clinicians, in my opinion, that if we don't help our clients regulate their nervous system, they're going to have problems over and over and over again. They're going to get dysregulated. They're going to try and do whatever they can to feel better, whether that's through sexual acting out or various kinds of other addictive compulsive type behaviors, right? So what happened for me is I have a very traditional background clinically. I, I was raised psychodynamically and with family systems. And then around 2004, 2005, some of my favorite colleagues were taking the somatic experiencing training. And what I noticed when they took the training is their nervous system was different and their practice was different. It it really was like a, a, a complete shift. So without knowing exactly what that meant, I took the somatic experiencing training myself, which is a three-year comprehensive training. Right. So let's talk a little bit about 
what somatic experiencing is, because I think a lot of people listening, that term doesn't have meaning. So can you explain that a little bit? Because I think it's important of what you're, we're going to talk about your book and some of the things you say in your book to really know what that is. Sure. So let me talk about somatic experiencing and brain spotting together, because even though they're different modalities, they're really both trauma healing modalities that, that focus on nervous system regulation. And when I say that, what I mean is, let me give you an example, Dwayne. So let's say you're on the freeway and somebody cuts you off. Oftentimes, what happens in our nervous system is we go into either fight or flight, right? We can either get rageful or we can completely shut down. It depends on our particular nervous system. Now, one of the keys to regulating the nervous system is knowing when we're dysregulated, right? So a dysregulation could be something like rage or panic or hypervigilance, something like that, which is what we might call an up regulation, or it could be something in the other direction, like a down regulation, which is disconnection, dissociation, depression, shutting down, etc. So the first thing I want my clients to learn is when do they feel more regulated and then when do they feel less regulated? So a regulated nervous system, the way I look at it is someone who feels most like themselves. And that's a subjective idea, but someone who feels most comfortable in their skin, feels calm, peaceful, grounded, and hopefully feels resourceful and resilient and and maybe even buoyant, right? So that's the first part of of the nervous system regulation. Right, and that that kind of feeling, I I call it kind of a centeredness. I don't know if that's the right term, but that's what I say. We're, We're at the centered place. We feel congruent, we feel whole. And we feel good about where we are in that in that moment. You mentioned in your book about addiction that a lot of people can have on the outside. It looks like everything is together, right? But on the inside, all of this trauma is still playing out. So there's like chaos in the inside, but the outside looks really good. And I think that's what when you look at somatic experiencing and brain spotting, you're really going into the inside to help heal that part. For sure. I think that's a a great way of describing it. I work with a lot of high-functioning clients, right? They're doing well in their workplace. They're achieving, by all appearances, they're successful. But underneath it, oftentimes, they're just miserable. You know, they're just not feeling a sense of hope or a sense of expansiveness in their in their emotional life, right? So one of the things that I think you're pointing to is that really all of us get regulated and dysregulated, and all of us have a nervous system. You know, one thing I learned in the SE training is, number one, I had a nervous system, and right. number two, I had a body. <laughs> Right. We are, we are robots. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And earlier in my career, all of my questions centered around, how are you feeling? Can you tell me what you think about that? So it was mostly thoughts and feelings. And when I shifted towards somatic work, 
I start asking things like, what's happening in your body right now? Or I noticed you looked away when we talked about your father. Can you check inside and see what might be happening internally? So, right. so the investigation and the awareness becomes much more dimensional. It's like a, a broader, bigger picture because you start to see things on a multitude of levels. For sure. And what's exciting about that is my clients realize, oh, so something's happening in my body. Therefore, there might be something from my past that is showing up there you know, what we might call stored memories or subcortical memories. And that's exciting when we get to solve the mystery together. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. So let's go a little bit in, in the direction of your book. So what does sex have to do with it when we look at this? <laughs> right. Great question. You know, I chose to name the book, It's Not About the Sex, because even though it looks like compulsive sexual behavior on the surface, once we right. scratch the surface, it's really about brokenheartedness. And the brokenheartedness comes in lots of shapes and forms. It might be trauma, or it might be other moments in life that were just too much to process at the time. But, but either way, what is important about sex is that I don't want to say it's completely not about the sex. That wouldn't be fair to say because right. I am, I do come from a sexual health perspective. I do believe in helping my clients develop a, a sex life that really works well for them. But underneath of it, what I'm wanting to look at with them is what is the grief underneath of it? What is the shame that hasn't been completely resolved? What is the nervous system dysregulation telling us? you know, things like that, so that we can really address some of the issues that do not get addressed in the 12 steps. Although I believe firmly in what the steps have to offer us, the deeper healing is really about understanding oneself in terms of, wow, what is it that really created this tendency to use sex as a way of trying to regulate the nervous system, right? It's an attempt to feel better. Right, and, an attempt and, to, to change how we feel in the moment. Can you describe how someone might do that if their nervous system was dysregulated, like you were talking about in traffic, and all of a sudden they're either up or down, downregulated mm -hmm. or upregulated? Mm -hmm. how, how might this play out for someone? Of course, there's no cookie cutter answer, right. but I'll give you a, a sense of what might happen. So let's say someone has that experience on the freeway. And they get home that night and they don't even think about it, but they go to their cabinet and they pour themselves a glass of wine. And before they know it, they're on the apps looking at all kinds of maybe dating apps, trying to distract themselves from what might have happened on the freeway. And then what would happen is it could escalate into, let's say, using porn for the next three or four hours. Right. And getting lost in that. So again, I, I want to remind everybody that when someone is trying to regulate themselves, it's actually an attempt to feel better, right? And it's sometimes an attempt to feel less because they're maybe too charged, or it could be an attempt to feel more when they're feeling less alive. You know, it's an attempt sometimes for aliveness, actually. Right. And that can look 
different to each person because we're all so unique sexually. And that can be really confusing if you don't understand the underlying trauma that's taking place. It can be easy just to dismiss it as, I don't have any willpower. I'm just a bad person. Maybe that's just what I am and and all of that stuff. And not understanding sometimes how this trauma plays out because it's, uh, I guess I could say like subconscious almost. You're so used to the trauma, you don't even know you're medicating the trauma. Right, right. That That's a good way of putting it, Dwayne, because oftentimes these are such old primitive memories that you're right, it's, it's very, we could say subconscious or subcortical where people go into automatic pilot and don't even know where it's coming from. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking about being cut off in traffic or whether it's just a, maybe somebody says, you know, I'm feeling cranky or I'm feeling irritable or I'm feeling disconnected. Sometimes it's just hard to pinpoint, right? It can happen in so many ways because it, it comes from such a oftentimes early attachment place. And that was exactly the next question I was going to talk about. Because these are deep wounds, they're attachment wounds that sometimes I think happen before cognitive consciousness, if that makes sense, before we're, we, we're, we're putting down memories. So we don't even know they've happened, but our bodies know. So, And so I want to talk about that attachment and then also how that intertwines with intimacy. Because you, you also talk about in your book the importance of having those relationships, reliable relationships. So I want to pull all that together as well. Sure. It's really a core part of, of what I believe personally and with my clients, because when we're talking about memories that are pre-verbal, we're talking about really the blueprint of what makes us who we are and how we relate to others. Do we feel safe with others? Do we feel trusting of others? Do we feel like someone is going to be there when we're upset? Do we feel like we're going to be abandoned? And all of those kinds of experiences happen early on, usually with parents or caregivers, depending on one's background. And attachment, of course, is a, is a big topic, but what I will say about how it works in the context of sexual compulsivity is that attachment usually shows up in one of two ways, in my office anyway, either through anxious attachment or avoidant attachment. And when somebody's, what I, what I always say is that if you scratch the surface on anyone who's sexually compulsive, you're going to find some kind of avoidant attachment with, within them. And I can speak from personal experience on that one as well. Right. But on the flip side, it's not like we're one or the other, right? There's lots of uh, different variations. And anxious attachment is classically the person who might be called a love addict or an intimacy addict. And so that's the individual who is constantly seeking attachment oftentimes is, is like a serial dater or is very involved in the process of trying to find a partner. And oftentimes is the person who will say, you know, I, I always end up with these unavailable people, you know, right. and, and then we dig down and what usually shows up is that 
actually they haven't really become available themselves for intimacy. And right. it takes some time to work through those issues because in my way of working with my clients, it's really in the relationship between me and them that they're practicing skills to really understand and identify and take a closer look at their attachment styles, right? So right. I might be the very first emotionally reliable person in someone's life. I actually hope not because the healing will come quicker if they can identify someone in their childhood who they felt was emotionally reliable. But if they can't identify that person, I may be that very first person for them. And so in our relationship, we're starting the process of what does it mean to get closer, but to also regulate the emotional distance in whatever way they may need to, to do so. Right. And I, I think it's important to point out that if a person has that avoidant attachment where, you know, maybe they don't feel safe getting close to anybody or the person with the with the anxious attachment or preoccupied attachment, they're always worried that if that's part of your life, it can feel so normal. You sometimes can't even see that that's taking place because once again, it's formed so early that it, it, it sets the this is the norm. Like we don't know what we don't know. Some, mm -hmm. sometimes if that makes sense. And yeah. so we go about through life trying to figure it out and we, we can't because we don't know that there's actually something different. I don't know if that, does yeah, that, that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing I always say is that we actually are searching for blind spots, right? My client and, and I are investigators looking for what those blind spots have been. So when you say we don't know what we don't know, for sure. I, I, I think that I, I come from a place of being as humble as possible and saying, well, let's let's try and understand these patterns together. And once we identify something that you didn't see before, it can never be a blind spot again. Right, right. Yeah. So as I as I keep building out this picture, because I, I think it's it's really good. It's like so you have these early wounds that impact your attachment. You have a difficult time connecting. And your nervous system is maybe dysregulated. And now what you're saying is you come to this reliable person. And this reliable person does what for you if you're, if you're struggling with this? Right. So let's say somebody is interested in a relationship, whether it be with dating or with a family member or a friend or myself. What I'm looking for is how is this individual able to, to feel more capacity for trust? How can they feel more capacity to feel safe enough? And how can they feel more capacity for love, really, is what I always land on, is that when we're talking about attachment and in intimacy, we're talking about love. Right. Yeah. And, and oftentimes, the ruptures around love and attachment are sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, but they're, they're almost always going to show up pretty much 100% of the time with someone who's dealing with a compulsive behavior of any kind, right? So that goes together. And I, I just want to say something about connection because I've been giving a lot of thought to what this means uh, for myself and how it applies to attachment. 
when I think about connection, I think about connection to one's inner world, right? Which is what we're right. talking about. But I'm also talking about one's connection to emotionally dependable or emotionally reliable people in their life. And we're also hopefully talking about a connection to something greater than oneself, right? Some people will call that higher power, universal power, God, nature. But but I believe that that's the trifecta. If, if we're connected within and to one another and to something greater than ourselves, that's going to create a, a platform for healing. Right. I totally agree. And that's a, a process of slowly doing that. If you've had those attachment traumas in your life, attaching to the, a higher power or attaching to a reliable other becomes scary in and of itself, even if you, they might not even realize it's scary. For sure. And, and sometimes, by the way, Dwayne, it might be glacial. I'm, we're not talking about overnight healing, right? Especially when we're talking about more specific types of trauma, like sexual abuse, for instance, or rape. And those types of intrusions take much longer to heal, but oftentimes are incredibly satisfying for, for my clients who who see that I, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm there with them, and I'm going to meet with them once, twice a week for the next whatever number of years. And so it's attachment trauma, but it's also specific trauma as well. Right. So it slowly starts to heal that brokenheartedness that you talked about earlier. Absolutely. And, and like I said before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Brokenheartedness comes in lots of shapes and forms, and brokenheartedness heals in lots of different ways as well. And I'm certainly not the Lone Ranger out there. I do believe in sometimes a team approach to, to help someone get the proper support. To be able to get have all those people come into that, like have 12-step, I think that's one of the wonderful things about 12-step is you can meet some reliable people in there that can start to help you heal those wounds. Right. I personally have an amazing therapist that I meet with regularly. I have a wonderful sponsor that I meet with regularly after all these years. And I have a belief in God and I have a morning ritual to have a conscious contact each morning. Right. Yeah. And so you practice that. There's a chapter in your book called Regulating the Nervous System. How does this apply to this work? I know we're kind of setting the stage, but now we hear it all. We have reliable relationships and we've got to now regulate our our nervous system. Right. Well, well, going back to what we started to look at a few minutes ago, the first thing really is to help clients get in touch what, with what we call the felt sense or, or somatic awareness, right? So the very beginning is helping my clients identify when they're having sensations in their body, because if they're not able to slow down and really check in with what their body is telling them, we really can't do much of anything. But sometimes people are really quite quick at being able to do that. And sometimes it takes a while to get there. So that that's the first piece. It's just the body awareness. And then, like I said, the difference between regulation and dysregulation and being able to differentiate between the two and to really savor the moments when they're regulated. Like if I see somebody 
smile or light up with excitement in session, I will always pause. I'll say, whoa, what, what happened just then? What, what was that smile saying? And they might explain why the smile came. And I said, well, why don't we just take a moment and just see what's happening internally as you savor that memory, right? So that's an example of expansiveness and, and really giving somebody a little more space to feel the positive charge, because I don't want to always focus on the suffering or on the difficult charge. Right, to be able to, to balance that out. Because I think a lot of times when we're in pain, that becomes all engulfing. You know, when we're in some kind of psychological pain, it becomes our focus. We become self-focused around that because it hurts. Absolutely. Yes. And what I want to say about this particular chapter is it, it really opens a dialogue. And because somatic experiencing and brain spotting are a bit esoteric, what I recommend that our listeners consider is to go to the brainspotting.com workshop, sub-workshop, um, <laughs> website. Website. And, yeah, not, they can go to the workshop too if they want to, but, but the website has actual videos of brain spotting and a lot more detail about what brain spotting is all about and, and how it helps the nervous system not only regulate, but, but release and discharge stored memories that are can be from any time in the past anything that was too much to process back then yeah and it's like you were saying earlier when we first started talking so much has changed in the field in the last you know 10 15 years understanding the body understanding the nervous system it really has been so helpful for so many people who have have this trauma because we understand now more than ever what's going on. It's not quite just, we're unsure. You feel bad. Try and feel better. <laughs> exactly. I, I was just reflecting on where we were in the early 90s around addiction uh, healing. And pretty much everything that I remember had to do with cognitive behavioral work, relapse prevention, and 12 step. And right. All of those things still hold true to be important pillars of working on addiction. But back then, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about addiction and trauma as being inseparable. Yeah. Because, because I believe that, that everyone who's in an addictive compulsive cycle has some kind of trauma in their background. And we just didn't know that 30 years ago. Yeah, we just didn't see it, you know. I mean, I mean that's that's what I love like the ACEs study came out. I mean, it just mm -hmm. really confirmed it. I mean, it's such mm -hmm. a huge study and really showed that these adverse childhood events impact everything in the adult life. Right. Right, we've come a long way. Yeah, definitely. So, I have a question for you. I think it's it's hard to do this work when you start to talk about somatic experiencing and and working with clients through this process without having to do that for yourself. And you mentioned that earlier. How does that play out in helping other people heal, like doing mm -hmm. your own work and your own experience? If you don't mind sharing a little bit about that, because I think it's helpful for people who are listening that 
many of us who are, who are doing healing work have had to do this work ourselves. I mean, it's the only way we could get here to do it anyway, right? So if you mind sharing a little bit about that, I think that would be helpful for people. Sure. So I believe that I can only go as far as my clients if I'm keeping a step ahead. Right. And the way I do that is, like I mentioned before, is I have my own therapy, which I've consider part of my work week every week you know part of what is really part of my own journey is having someone in my corner to help work things through that come up for me i've also had a sponsor all these years i mean i'm I'm really fortunate my current sponsor i've been with for almost 13 years um about the same time i started with my current therapist about 13 years ago so they're kind of my dynamic duo for sure And as I mentioned, I do have a belief in God and a belief in the 12 steps. And I I work the steps over and over. I'm on my third or fourth time through at this point. And also, I just surround myself with people in my life who are really trustworthy and loving and show me the kind of support and belief in in who I am that, that helps me move forward. And and so I have a handful of colleagues that I sometimes will lean in their direction for consultation, but oftentimes just to hang out and walk the dog at the beach. I mean, I've got to have fun. I've got to take time off. I've got to decompress. I've got to find some kind of life balance, although that's something I I continue to work on. And and so it's a lot of ingredients towards self-care and preventing burnout. But I guess the most important thing, Dwayne, is I really, really enjoy what I do. And that makes a huge difference. You know, there was a time early in my career that I was feeling a bit burnt out. And I, that was before this whole wave of SE and brain spotting and advanced group studies that I'm involved in. So things have, have really evolved. And 30 years later, I'm actually just as optimistic as I was back then. Yeah. And it, if you're in the helping profession like this, it's so when you when you find these new things that and you see like, oh, my gosh, this is this is really I can see it now. I see it in my own life and I can see it in my client's life. It's just it's rewarding and and enriching. And and I think also what your story says, anybody out there listening, that part of this process is just being human, that we are in this together and and trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. And, and we can slowly put these pieces in place to help us heal our nervous system, help us heal our spirit, all of that. If we, if we slowly put these pieces in place and, and like, I think you said, surround yourself with people that can help you walk through that process. Right. No, that's beautiful. I, I agree. It's corny, but it does take a village. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, all that, uh, intimacy, especially if, you know, you grew up in a place that wasn't safe to have those connections. You, and I think it's really hard I, or maybe impossible to, to heal without them. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, I, I think we could, we could talk about this in so much more detail. I mean, maybe we'll have to have you come back on and, and we can go into a specific detail of something because I, I know we have just touched the very surface of all of this information. So it's awesome to have you come on 
And uh, one of the questions I, I love to ask every guest that comes on to The Addicted Mind is if someone's out there listening, they're struggling, maybe they're caught in their own trauma, maybe they're seeing this, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? If you could say one thing. Number one, it gets better. And number two, please ask for help. It gets better. Ask for help. Yeah. I love it. So thank you, Andrew, so much for coming on. How can people find you? How can they get a hold of you if they want more information? How can they find your book? Sure. So the easiest way to reach me is through my website, which is westsidetherapist.com. And that's one word, singular, Westside Therapist. And on my website, you can click on to either my current book or my past workbook. I have podcasts as well, and I have a blog, and I am have a YouTube channel. So everything is really available on the website. And as you mentioned, my, my current book, it's not about the sex, moving from isolation to intimacy after sexual addiction, is available on Amazon and Kindle and Audible. And please don't hesitate to use me as a resource if you just are interested in more information about anything that we've talked about today. I'm happy to email with you or to find a way to point you in the right direction. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I will put all of that information in the show notes so they can find it. And they can find that at theaddictedmind.com. Andrew, thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, every positive review helps the podcast get found and helps others connect with The Addicted Mind. And if you'd want to continue the conversation online, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.